Welcome to Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever's On the Wing Podcast. Buckle up and ride shotgun as we cover everything you need to know about the uplands. The habitat. The hunting. And of course, your favorite bird dogs. Welcome to Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever's On the Wing Podcast. Today, we're going to talk about a brand new content series called Path to the Uplands. This content series will be written word, blogs, future podcasts, stories, videos, uh, articles in the Pheasants Forever Journal, Quail Forever Journal, um, as well as events. You're very uh, likely to see that banner, Path to the Uplands, at National Pheasant Fest and Quail Classic um, into the future. And, and the purpose behind this campaign, this content series campaign, um, is to welcome anyone into the upland lifestyle that we all cherish. You know, for some of us, and um, the, the path to the uplands is a pretty clear one. I had both my mom and my dad, uh, my grandparents, uncles, my brother, the family dog, everybody helped me walk down that path. But it's not as clear for everybody out there in the world. Um, and, you know, some some of those paths are filled with ferns, some are filled with briars, and there's a lot of tangents or tributaries along the path that can lead you different directions and lose your way. So the essence of this content series, this Path to the Uplands content series is, is pretty simple. Um, our goal is to create a library of resources that help establish a clear path for everyone to find their place in the uplands, understand the importance of upland habitat, the joys of upland hunting, and the importance of upland conservation. So let's, uh, let's, let's introduce our participants that are going to help uh, oh, beat down the path to the uplands. Let's say that. Uh, we, have, we have three folks that are no strangers to the podcast. Uh, quarterbacking the Path to the Uplands effort, Marissa Jensen, our Education and Outreach Program Manager and, and frequent co-host with me on On the Wing Podcasts. We have Colby Kerber, the Hunting Heritage Program Manager, who was on a wonderful uh, podcast about six months ago. Uh, breaking down what the R3 acronym means to uh, the world of conservation. And Tom Carpenter, podcast listeners know him as CARP. And in helping us along, I want to start right from the get-go um, by sh a shout out to our corporate partners. Uh, so much of what we do in, at Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever wouldn't happen without funding. And right out of the gates, we have six, that's right, six sponsors, um, Federal Ammunition, Onyx Maps, Sound Gear Hearing Protection, 
Sport Dog Electronic Dog Training Systems, and Alps Outdoors, all on board to help us kick off Path to the Uplands. So without further ado, um, I, I'd like Marissa to, as, as the brainchild that, you know, it's, it's hard to track the entirety of the roots of this concept because it's had, it, it's taken um, a journey getting to this point and a lot of people have been instrumental in, in conceptualizing the, the idea that is now Path to the Uplands. But it started really with kind of in renaming the Pheasant Fest stage a um, couple of years ago, didn't it, Marissa? Yeah, you know, um, it, it's really exciting. And, and it started a little bit, you know, prior to that, too, as we started to grow our Women on the Wing initiative and, you know, finding opportunities for other individuals to engage in the uplands. And, um, you know, ultimately, I think what provided us a really unique opportunity was um, from this podcast, uh, we had an adult onset hunter podcast, um, where there was just so much great feedback from individuals who commented on, you know, the struggles or the excitement or the different opportunities that they found, um, you know, when they were looking for their path to the uplands. Um, you know, Julia Shrinkler, who's a great friend of many of ours, um, really kind of helped us conceptualize some of that um, and, and breathe life into that series. So we've worked really, really hard as an organization. It's something that we're really excited about um, to just deliver a series of content that speaks to everyone, uh, knowing that regardless of your interests, regardless of the path that you take, um, you know, the uplands are for you and we want you to find your way there. Um, you know, our vision of this is really your vision and, and you as in the listeners or whoever's reading the content or watching the content, um, you know, what will your path look like? Well, it has looked different for all of us, including, you know, everybody mm -hmm. on this podcast. You know, some of us grew up hunting. Some of us just got started. Uh, you may live in a city or a subdivision or along a country road. Um, so really, you know, what matters is what draws you to the outdoors and how we can help you to get there. Well, that that's a perfect segue to the fact that we all did come from different paths to the uplands. So um, why don't you talk, you've, you've talked about it a little bit on other uh, podcasts before, but for the purposes of this audience that probably come into this as an kickoff to this can content series, tell folks kind of your unusual way that you ended up cherishing the uplands and ultimately having a career that, um, you know, revolves around this, that it's become more than a career for all of us, really. It's, it's part of your identity and your lifestyle. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I, I grew up in a family in a city um, with parents, you know, that didn't hunt. I wasn't exposed to any of it. Um, big time animal lover, vet tech for a lot of my professional career. And quite honestly, embarrassingly enough, was opposed to hunting. Um, I didn't like shotguns. I didn't like any guns. I was terrified of them. I had one experience shooting a gun and it, uh, 
it wasn't a fun one. Um, just wasn't taught how to hold it properly. And so it just didn't go great. And, um, you know, so it, it took, it took a long time until I was 30 years old to decide that I wanted to start hunting. And, you know, Colby and I talk about this a lot. Colby's, you know, uh, an adult onset hunter as well. Um, and, you know, how, like, what was that lightning, that light bulb moment uh, mm-hmm. that finally convinced me? And there's a lot of different things, you know, dogs and the, you know, finding a sustainable food source or a local food source. Those were all motivators. But, um, you know, really, ultimately, I think it just for some reason, I decided to listen differently when somebody talked to me about it. Why yeah. I chose to listen differently at that point, I don't know. Um, but the component of hunting being conservation and just all that it encompasses when the out within the outdoors, that's, I mean, it was just a no brainer. Is there anything else in your life where you listened differently or was this an incredibly major anomaly? That's a good question. You know, um, I think that was, this is probably the biggest change that's mm-hmm. ever happened in my life. And it lit- quite literally changed the trajectory of my life. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, went from being a veterinary technician um, to going to get my Bachelor of Science to work with, you know, wildlife to now working for the Habitat organization. Um, so it, it, it definitely, I don't think there's probably anything else in the history of my life that I can point at and say, wow, like that really changed everything. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it, it relates to, you know, and I've mentioned this before, it's a pet peeve of mine when people refer to hunting, fishing as sports. They're, they're not sports in any, you know, I worked in sports. I worked in baseball. You win or you lose, right? Somebody's declared the victor and there's a, there's a singular champion. Hunting is not like that. There, it is it, it, and its sport is used as a default because it's hard to categorize hunting, fishing, the outdoors into something. But it purely is a lifestyle, you know, because it, you know, especially you start to think about it like you you own a dog, and that's you know you have that dog three hundred sixty five days, right? You're feeding the pup taking it out, training, the food that you eat is part of the hunting, the clothing that you wear, it becomes a part of your identity and it is so much different than a sport. So sorry for that diatribe, but it, it does, it, it, it is, uh, when you, when I asked about, you know, has there any, ever been anything that made you listen differently? I guess I would have been surprised had you answered anything other than, no, this is probably the biggest one because this is a life-altering adoption of a uh, kind of a different culture, different sensibilities, and it, it, you know, and that's that's important to recognize as you begin your journey on the path to the uplands, right? That it's it's a journey that's going to be filled with satisfaction and and wonderful moments and joy, but it's a journey that also has hurdles and turns, and it's not all 
Nerf football candy canes and roses. You know, there's going to be, right, there's going to be some bruises, some life choices, some, some really soul searching. And out the end, I'm confident that if you stay on that path, um, you'll find a piece of the uplands that makes anybody a better individual, even if they never pick up a shotgun, right? If they understand the how much the uplands brings to just the, the web of life, right? Water quality, um, the, the foods we eat, the wild places. Um, it's just, it's so deep. I probably, um, you know, cutting right to the end zone before we even ran down the field, but it, it, it's an important, um, it's an important journey that we all have taken at different, um, different paces through our life. So, so let me transition. As you mentioned, Colby was, a um, an adult onset hunter as well. Um, Colby, tell us, tell us about your path to the uplands. Yeah, and it, uh, Bob, as you were speaking there and talking about a lifestyle, it's even difficult to explain that to your inner circle, your closest family members. My wife and I were just having a conversation yesterday. Um, you know, it's really cold out right now, and she's doing a bunch of baking, and she referred to baking as her new hobby and and referenced it to hunting. You know how she's like, well, your 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 hobby is hunting, and I was like, no, you know, hunting is not a it's not a hobby for me. Um, and, and she lives with me every day. So it's, um, it's, it's hard to explain it to people who don't live in that outdoor lifestyle that we all love so much. Mm-hmm. Um, as you said, everybody's got their different paths to the uplands. And um, I've kind of explained mine on the last podcast I was on here. But as stated earlier, I am a first generation hunter. Um, I didn't grow up in a city. I did grow up in a rural community, um, lived in the outdoors my entire life, grew up on a farm and ranch. So my connection was just a deep appreciation and love for the land, Um, that love for uh, the land, the working lands, you know, um, the animals that live there and that connection to that fresh air. That's always been a part of me, Um, but I never did have the um, recreational connection. So the fishing, camping, hunting, uh, that was never part of my life at all. And I always wanted to have a connection back towards working lands. And the closest way that I could find that was through biology and wildlife management. And so that's the path that I chose and went into uh, make a career out of wildlife management. And once I got into wildlife management, you know, hunting obviously is a big part of that. I didn't really understand how much it would change my life. Um, but once, you know, I did go hunting and, and someone took me and mentored me along the way, um, it's absolutely, my whole life revolves around that now. And, and now I'm raising a family of course, and um, I still have that love for the land. And that's still, I guess, if you want to say the path and the different paths that are, are there, that's the connection for me is, is the management side of things that our organization, nobody does it better, you know, from the local volunteers all the way to our staff members is um, just the management side of things and how it affects all wildlife. And that's what really brought me to the uplands in that common place is it's for everybody and um, love it. You know, a, a few minutes ago, I mentioned R3 and that for folks, you know, that are inside baseball and know the acronym R3, um, you know, they, they 
hear that and think, well, this is all about um, new hunters. Path to the Uplands is all about new hunters, but but that's not that's really not the case. So spend a spend a moment describing R three, and then spend a moment explaining how you feel Path to the Upland sort of addresses all three aspects of that initiative. Yeah, so R3 is recruit, retain, and reactivate um, hunter conservationist. And it is a, a big national movement um, to get more individuals into the outdoors and specifically to get them to purchase a hunting license down the road. Um, the big thing with that though, is if we focus on one of the R's and not all three of them, we won't be successful in the long term. And one of the unique situations that we're in currently as we sit was, um, unfortunately, we had the pandemic of COVID-19 in, in 2020. And what that actually did was something that our industry um, and the professionals involved in it could, could never do. Um, and that was provide people with extra time. And so mm -hmm. last year, we actually seen a lot of people um, connect either for the first time or reconnect with the outdoors in ways that they they haven't before. And so um, right now we have a lot of people that either had their first experience in the outdoors last year or they reconnected with the outdoors. And going into 2021, we have such a unique um, time um, that we need to take advantage of it. There's just no... Um, way around that is there's a ton of people interested. They may have had an experience last year, but now we need to retain them. And that's going to be when we look back years from now and decide um, how we took advantage of this pandemic um, is it's going to be the retention side of it. And so what we need to do right now, that's why it's such a great rollout for our Path to the Uplands content series is we're going to lay out different initiatives throughout the year um, that eventually will lead to people being in the fall or in the field this fall. And the stuff that we're going to put out there hopefully will not only be something that's a value to those new hunters, um, but also the ones that we reactivated. So if you look at just gun buyers alone in this country, we have over 8 million new gun owners in this country. So you talk about people that are sure. sitting there um, and looking for information. That's the big thing is right now is, is they have an interest. They may have purchased a firearm, maybe purchased a hunting license, but now what? And um, that's what we're going to lay out here in this content series is the, the whys, the hows, and uh, really get people excited for this fall. Well said. Um, as we get let CARP get a word in edgeways now, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll mention that I got an email here from, from Bill, frequent podcast listener, says, and I know Carp will get a giggle out of this. He loves when Carp is on with his list listicle episodes on the podcast. And Bill, listener Bill, you'll be happy to hear <laughs> that we have a a seven point not not normal not normally Carp's eleven point list, but we have a seven point list from Carp on uh, the essentially the joys of the uplands or the, 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 the joys that bring people to the uplands. But before we get into that list, let me ask uh, Carp first, um, what was your path to the uplands, Carp? Did you grow up in the uplands or were you uh, an adult onset uh, bird hunter? I was, uh, I was born into it. And um, 
some of my earliest memories are small game hunting with my father. Um, I, I still remember my my sixth birthday present was, and it was my birthday is on November seventh. Listeners, there you go. If you want to send me but it's, it can be awfully cold for a little kid at that time of year. And I remember going squirrel hunting with my father and my gift was I got to carry his squirrels and I remember carrying his squirrels. And, um, you know, that sort of harkens, well, first of all, so that's my background. I grew up, I, I started hunting pheasants, going along hunting pheasants when I was eight years old. I grew up in Southwestern Wisconsin, born into a hunting family, born into a family with hunting dogs. Uh, listeners will know, some people will be surprised, but I grew up with basset hounds who, who are great rabbit dogs and excellent pheasant dogs because they go so slow. So I, unlike Colby and Marissa, I was born into it. And um, I think I still have an angle though, a, a very important angle to help people do it. Um, I've been, I, I consider myself an outdoor writer since 1982 when I was 20 years old and sold a story to my local newspaper. And I've been trying to help people learn how to hunt and fish ever since. And that's sort of what, what, I, what I'm going to bring into this. In addition to, as we've talked, our, our commitment to, Pheasants Forever's commitment to conservation, as Colby said, and, and we've all, we all agree, hunt, it's, we're not just hunters, we're, we're hunter conservationists. We buy licenses, we care about habitat, we care about the resources, and we're not just, we're not just recruiting hunters, we're recruiting, we're, we're recruiting the next generation of conservationists. And, and I don't care what generation of age you're from, I mean, mm -hmm. we'll take people from every age, age, ethnicity, uh, gender, religion, who cares? I mean, everybody can be a hunter and I know hunters from all kinds of different angles. And that's sort of what, what Path to the Uplands is about. Um, you know, Colby talked about the retention uh, that we're gonna have to do because people found all this time with COVID-19 mm -hmm. and um, th they, they started hunting again in, I don't know if you'd call it droves, but substantial numbers came back. Yeah. Um, if, if you apply for t certain tags um, for hunting, um, you, you know it. If you're that, you, you could see it. Um, so that's that's what that's what I'm here for is to is to help everybody. And, and in this content series, I'll be helping do a lot of the work um, to get some of this content together, especially especially the written word. And uh, I'll be drawn on my experience, both as an outdoorsman for a long, long time now, and also as a long time writer and editor uh, in, the out, in the outdoor world. So I, I was born into this. I, I wasn't retained or recruited or reactivated. I was burst into it. And everybody who is born into it doesn't necessarily do it. And it, it is a lifestyle. It, I'd even go go one step further and say it is my life. Mm. Um, it's as deep as that. And we're going to talk about all those reasons today uh, because there's other types of hunting out there. Why should you be an upland hunter? And, and we're going to talk a little bit about that when we get into, into the introduction to this story. Um, it's not always easy to be an upland hunter. In fact, I would almost say in some ways it's almost hard, maybe than being a waterfowler, it's maybe the hardest type of hunting to get into. Um, 
but it could it can be the most rewarding. And I'll leave I'll leave us with this. I've always been an upland hunter since I was eight years old. I've had my I've owned a bird dog that was my own since I was 10 years old, hmm. whether it was a Basset Hound, Springer Spaniels, and now Brittany's for the last few decades. Um, but I've, I've taken different side paths in my hunting career, including big game and including waterfowl. And up the uplands are the core of who I am and, and now they are sort of it. I'm continually doing less and less of everything else and more and more of just upland hunting um so we can talk about that a little more too but well, that's you mentioned that um upland hunting next to maybe waterfall hunting is being the most challenging and i think one of the important components so as we transition from we talked a lot about why we're doing path to the uplands so now let's talk about you know the nuts and bolts of it um but before we get into the joys which which really your list of seven is about the joys. Um, I, I think it's important to, you know, pull the curtain back uh, on the on the challenges. You know, what when you make the comment, boy, next to waterfowling, uplands might be the most difficult. What, what's in your mind? Uh, it's uh, it's an interesting topic, and it's it's dogs. You can become a deer hunter. Uh, pretty easily without making an everyday commitment to a dog in your life. You can become a turkey hunter without making an everyday commitment to a dog in your life. Duck hunting, you maybe can get by without a dog. Most people don't like to because of the get that duck back to me mm -hmm. need of that hunting. I, the only reason I'd say duck hunting is, is harder is because it's more equipment intensive. And we'll get into that in our reasons too. Mm -hmm. um, but all those other hunting, it's the dog that makes it more challenging because it makes it your lifestyle, but it's also the dog that makes it most rewarding. And when we get into the reasons, as yeah. listeners as listeners can probably guess, that's gonna be a, <laughs> a, a number one reason on this list here, but that's also what makes it the most challenging. And um, that's that's as that's as simple as I can put it. It's no, no hunting is easy. It's all rewarding, but the uplands are a little different. You got to make a little a little deeper call when you're getting real serious about it. Now, some people do hunt without a dog, um, and we can talk a little bit about that. Marissa's laughing here because we've 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 took this one out already, and uh, but but uh, that's that's the difference for most uplanders is the dog. And, you know, and that's uh, some great points there, Carp, you know, that uh, can be definitely one of what we call the barriers when it gets into hunting, when we're recruiting and retaining people. And, and we'll talk about some of the other barriers and how we can break down some of those walls. But as somebody myself who uh, personally doesn't own um, an upland bird dog, I would say a couple of things that go along with that is um, I think that's kind of the ultimate goal. You know, as you set goals in your hunting career and you grow um, and you grow in the community, that's that's where I want to be. And that's part of me raising a family too is I want to get the kids involved and, and the bird dog as a part of our family because essentially it's like uh, having another family member 
Um, but I don't think that necessarily, even though that can be a major challenge, is all the upland bird hunting that I do. Um, a lot of it is because of the community support and the social support and, and the environment that's around it. Um, and, and the activities that go with it is I get to see all the different bird dogs. You know, I hunt with um other people's dogs i get to see different breeds and how they they act and respond and the way they work the fields and stuff and so the way that i actually pursue the uplands um is is in a group setting i don't go out by myself um knowing there are limitations to not having a bird dog myself um but i get to see everybody else's passion and their enthusiasm and um, especially as a newer hunter myself um it, it takes a lot to, um, I, I wanted to learn my my woodsmanship and my outdoor skills in the field first. So I just wanna make sure that everybody understands that, hey, I'm taking full advantage of hunting over everybody else's bird dogs while I can. <laughs> uh, eventually I'm gonna get to a point where I'm gonna, I really want that reward of, of hunting over my own bird dog, but um, don't let that stop you from getting out there and finding other people to to go with and have that social support. Colby hit it on the head. Get out there and hunt with people who have these dogs. Don't don't make that commitment until you know. But then I, I predict if you're a serious uplander, you're going to end up with a dog at some point. But absolutely, there's no barrier. There's no barrier to getting started without one. But you do you do you do need that community support network. Uh, and and once you see those dogs working, you'll you'll start to come around. And and maybe this year, maybe next year isn't the right year, but at some point you're gonna you're gonna make the make the call. Bob, we're already we're into number one already. We, <laughs> we are, but I I I let I wanted this conversation to kind of happen organically because I do think it's an important illustration of the fact that it is a choose your own adventure um, approach, you know, and, and I think about a, a buddy of mine, we'll call him Brian because his name's Brian <laughs> <laughs> that I worked with um, in baseball and I took him out hunting when you know, I, I grew up as a bird hunter, but I, I didn't, um, I didn't work in this world. Right. I, I just wanted to share something I loved with a best friend of mine. And, you know, we talked about all kinds of hunting. We talked about bird hunting, deer hunting, turkey hunting, and he selected bird hunting because in his mind, um, it was going to be difficult for him to kill a deer, to kill a rabbit. Like in, in his mind, there was kind of an anthropomorphization. So giving human qualities to certain, to particularly to mammals. And, you know, let's, let's be transparent here. I mean, hunting something, if you're successful, something dies. And you want to make good use of that. And you want to be at peace with that. And you know, I've always thought as a little kid, I learned to hunt birds first. And, and this was the same thing with Brian. He wanted to sort of progress because he thought, you know, taking a deer's life, I don't know that I'm ready for that. I want to pro progress up to that. So I, I, I bring that up because it, it just, as folks listen it's not, it, if you identify with carp, if you identify with me, if you identify more with Marissa, 
great. Hopefully you identify with one school of thought. You might not identify with everything because we all had different paths. And whoever you are, you didn't get to this point by following the same path I did. And you're not going to follow the same path forward. And if to you starting off, you know, turkey hunting feels the comfortable way of doing it, then terrific. You know, that it, it's a matter of what makes you comfortable and you start to build this connection with nature and ultimately conservation that we care about. All right. Without further ado, seven reasons to become an upland bird hunter. Number, number, number one. Sorry, that's my best uh, sound effect. Uh, the bonds, particularly the bonds created with a um, life with a bird dog. And we have talked about this a roundabout way for the better part of the first uh, 15 minutes here. Um, Carp, give us, give us the overview, life with a bird dog. Well, you know, we've talked about it and, and we, we don't have to go back and, and rehash the journey of whether you have a dog now or you're gonna get one five years from now. But ultimately, for those of us who have bird dogs, it transcends the hunt itself. It becomes the hunt. It becomes the reason for going. It becomes the. It it becomes part of your life, and learn. I, I use the words learning, understanding, companion, coexist, companionship, coexistence, love, and acceptance. Hunting with a bird dog is all those things that also add partnership in there, and it's it's to me the core of why I'm an upland bird hunter is to be out there with my dog, with an understanding of that, of and being out in the field with that dog. I, I've, I frequently use this and some people get it and some people don't, but I'll say it. And it is sometimes I don't know if I'm that dog or, or, I, or the dog doesn't know if she's me. That's sort of how we hunt together. And I, I'm very, as, as you've, people who have listened to this podcast know I'm, I'm very non-traditional in the way I train a dog in the way I hunt with a dog and it works for us and that's sort of the key that I wanted to get at with this point is there's no right or wrong with a bird dog nor is it as difficult as you might think and we're going to talk about that in the future in this content series but there's that's a very important point i want to make is it's not as challenging as you think to train a bird dog and hunt birds with it it doesn't have to be complex and it's easy to form these bonds we all most of us love dogs a lot People that love dogs understand that bond gets even deeper when it's a bird dog and you hunt together and you sort of have that. And I don't want to use this word in a dramatic way, but it's a communion between you and that dog and the bird in the habitat. And that's pretty, pretty important, important enough to me that I put it first on the list. Hmm. Well, in, in the hierarchy of reasons to find joy in the uplands. I know it's real high on Marissa's list too, the relationship. Marissa, who was, as as you mentioned, a vet tech before coming to, to work 
um, in conservation. Um, the, the dog component really resonates with you, doesn't it, Marissa? Yeah, it does. And, you know, as you guys mentioned earlier, you know, trying different types of hunting, um, I started with turkey hunting. And um, it wasn't until, and, and it's so funny, I can remember the exact moment where I was when a cousin of mine um, mentioned to me, you know, hey, as much as you love dogs and hiking and training, you know, you have to try upland hunting. I think we all agree it's it's worth it. Yeah, no, no doubt about it. We'll, uh, but it, you know, we've spent an awful lot of time on, on the dog component, but, you know, to Colby's earlier point, um, that shouldn't be a barrier to getting on the path. Um, I, I have another buddy that, uh, when I ask, you know, what's your favorite breed of dog? And his answer is whatever breed is hunting next to me for my buddy, right? It, mooch the pooch. You know, somebody else's dog is always the best dog. So don't let that be a, a, a barrier to, to exploring the uplands. I'll, I'll tell you this, too. As a dog owner, there is nothing more thrilling than to take a hunter who doesn't have a dog out mm -hmm. and and walk them along with that dog and to have my little dog, my little dog go on point and to say, okay, go in. I could just see them shaking. Mm -hmm. You can see people shaking with excitement when that happens. And that to, to a, somebody who has a dog and trained that dog, it's just, it's more exciting than shooting a, at a bird yourself. It's so rewarding. So don't be afraid to ask somebody to go with them. As somebody who doesn't own a bird dog, you talk about the different barriers in hunting and sometimes working with experienced hunters, they don't want to give up all the secrets, but there is no more of a welcoming crowd out there than a bird dog owner. Because if you ask them anything about their bird dogs, you're going to be like, we are right now struggling to go on to the next topic. <laughs> well, with, uh, as the host with three dogs waiting for a bathroom break, at the end of this podcast, I am going to move us along to, <laughs> to uh, point number two. Carp uh, writes motion, exercise, and activity. And we've touched on this a number of times. Marissa mentioned hiking. Carp um, mentioned, you know, you don't have to get up super early. You don't have to sit in a tree stand. But there is a, there is a, element of being in shape, being physical, being an adventurer. Uh, Colby, tell us a little bit about your perspective on exercise and activity. Yeah, it's uh, being outdoors and being active is extremely important, especially um, for me, not only for myself uh, personally, um, especially when work can get you stuck behind a computer desk pretty often. Uh, but for me, it's about raising my family. Um, my two kids are just a bundle of energy that is waiting to go somewhere <laughs> and there is no better place for that energy to go is is the uplands um, they can explore they can cut loose um, there's wide open spaces and so it, it's extremely important and not only is it important for the cardio side and just getting your physical activity and your balance but 
the other thing is the mental side of it. Um, there's just so much to be said when you're in the uplands that it can transcend you and it's humbling and you feel uh, connected to nature and just a part of something that you can't experience, um, you know, in a busy city or behind a computer desk or whatever it may be. Um, when you're out there, it, it's it's physically demanding, um, but it's also mentally just brings you to a place where um, I, I can't describe it as anything else, you know, but it, it you know, there's studies out there, too. There's a lot of studies um, with vitamin D that you're getting from the sunshine and there's studies that show the lower stress and cardiovascular side of things. Um, so there's uh, nothing but benefit when it comes to moving and uh, being active in the uplands. He miss anything, Carp? No, he, he hit it on the head. I mean, I don't. I'm I'm a deer hunter, and as Bob knows, I'm a turkey hunter. I'm a, a crazy turkey hunter. Those are largely sedentary sports. If you want to shoot a deer, if you want to shoot a turkey, you better be sitting still and probably even hidden. And you better be patient and be able to wait for a long time. And with upland bird hunting, if you, you can, you could people who like to move, who like to be active, who like to wander and see what's over every hill, who want to keep active and keep moving, upland bird hunting is your solution. And that's why I, I love it. Um, it's uh, everybody's built differently. Some people can sit for hours and hours and I can, I can sit for hours and hours, but the reason I probably can sometimes is because I'm, I'm upland bird hunting 90% of the time versus the 10% or 20% of my other hunting. Um, so that, that's why I, that's number two is there's, it, it appeals to people who want to be active as Colby said, mm -hmm. and you can be active and exploring. And that, that's, that's another reason I love it. I'll, I, I checked my, you know, you can walk miles in a day. I, to give you an idea, I, I discovered last fall hunting sharp tailed grouse in, uh, in that little corner where South Dakota meets North Dakota meets, Monta meets Montana, which is some of the least, least densely populated. And I'd, I'd offer wildest places in the lower 48 is if you don't want to see any people. I walked one day and when I was done with the day, I had 29,850 steps. That's probably about 14 miles. My dog probably went two, two and a half times that. I, and I, I, I felt mighty good to have had all that exercise. Now you're not going to exercise that much every day, but you, you know, you know, you were out hunting when you did, when you do that versus sitting at a tree stand for three hours. Yeah. Yeah. Really well said. And, and you touched on, you know, that, that lonely corner of Montana and the Dakotas, which is a great transition to number three. And I, and no, so number three is landscapes, wild places. And to me, this, this may not be the top one for me, but it is for sure the most underappreciated one in my view. I, I really, 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 really <laughs> love the sense of place that's connected with all the different birds and all the different landscapes that we get to chase feathers. Uh, Marissa, what's what's landscapes and wild places mean to you? Oh, everything is that, is that too broad? Um, 
it's just honestly, you know, when we were talking about it in the beginning and and I was thinking about it, when you when you find your space in the uplands, it becomes part of you. You take that with you wherever you go. Um, and you know, regardless of it's the sand hills or if you're walking cattails for late season roosters or a, a line of plum thicket, I mean it's the connection that you have with that land, with those birds, it it's just, I, I don't even know what word to describe it. I mean, it, it's just humbling. And, uh, you know, and then you start to, you know, learn the intricacies of the places, you know, what are the birds feeding off of? You're starting to identify the different plants, the forbs, the, you know, the flowers and the grasses and everything that grow in those areas. So it's, those landscapes are just, it, it's everything, um, you know, and you touched on the importance of, you know, water and the health of those habitats. I mean, the, the plants that grow there and the importance of the root structures and everything. I mean, it's just so fascinating. Um, I don't, there's, there's really nowhere else like the uplands. Um, and, you know, just being able to get out there and, and feel like you're in some of those last places where you can truly get lost if you want to. Um, it, it's hard to beat that. Anything you want to add to that carpet? Well, yeah, I, I would. It's Marissa stated it so well. I, I can't say that any better. The only thing I can add is you own land on which to do this. And that's called public lands. Mm. And that's one reason we want all these hunters to, to come into the fold and be hunter conservationists. But you own millions upon millions upon millions of acres of public land across the pheasant range, across the quail range, in rough grouse territory in the West upon which you can do this. And not, and not only are there public lands that are publicly forever owned, and Pheasants Forever has made over 210,000 acres public uh, that Pheasants Forever doesn't own, but it, it transfers to other organizations, state DNRs, U.S. Fish and Wildlife. It becomes forever public and open to hunting. That's just a smidgen of the millions of acres out there. And one of the we talk about barriers to hunting. One of the barriers is... I don't have a place to hunt. People say, well, it's like, no, that's not an excuse. You have places to hunt. Um, and, and furthermore, you can hunt on private land and it's called public access. Uh, there's a programs called VPA HIP. We're getting into the acronyms mm -hmm. now, but there's organizations like Pheasants Forever work with state de de departments of game departments to help make private lands accessible for public hunting. And you're going to learn all about that in this content series. That's a big thing we're going to be doing is telling you where you can go hunting. And all these places, I talk about the places I, I am, like if I'm out sharp-tailed grouse hunting, they're public, they're wide open. You own them, I own them, there's nobody on them. And all you need is your feet and a shotgun and you can go wander them. Yeah. Uh, terrific, terrific point. Um, and we're going to talk about, as you, as you mentioned, public lands and deciphering what is public and what isn't as we go through this content series. I do want to point out um, Onyx Maps, one of our partners in this content series, has the single best tool available 
for figuring out public land. Um, so download the Onyx um, app. And if you use the code quail or pheasant, you get 20% off when you download the app. So whichever whichever uh, organization you want to get the you know the loyalty to quail or pheasant uh, using that code um, to download onyx maps will will help us help onyx but most importantly it'll help you figure out what's public what's private and where those boundaries are uh, number 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 four quattro the moments in carp carp talked about this uh as well related to dogs the moments behind uh you know experiencing you know hunting with another person's dog or even your own dog um the skips of the heart that are the moments in the uplands uh colby you don't own a dog but you have the same skips of the beat to your heart when you're out in the uplands. Tell us about what, uh, what makes you palpitate. Well, I will say two things, I guess. Um, one is kind of ties back to number three a little bit, but I challenge everybody that's listening to enjoy those uplands all year round. Um, I know we're focused a lot on upland hunting and the hunting aspect of it in the fall. And uh, trust me, the fall is some of the most beautiful settings you'll ever see um, in the uplands. But um, there's some moments that I've had that have made my heart skip that are in the summertime, in the springtime. Uh, they're open for us to enjoy that public ground mm -hmm. all year round. So get out there and enjoy it. Don't wait till next fall because you're going to miss some of those best um, moments. That being said, um, when I think of something making my heart skip. It is absolutely without a question, a covey of quail flushing at my feet. Mm -hmm. um, I live in some of the best quail country around. Um, I'm lucky enough to live on the edge of the sand hills in central Nebraska, where we have um, quail numbers that are, are great. And those bobwhite quail will scare everything out of you and humble you and make you sit there in awe. Um, and whether you're upland bird hunting or not, um, I come upon quail all the time. And um, it, I don't know how to describe it, I guess, to somebody that hasn't ever experienced it. It's, it's such a, a tough feeling to replicate and tell. But um, I can just say this, a lot of times when I am um, upland hunting, I don't even pull the trigger and I end up standing there smiling, looking like a clown in the middle of the uplands. And mm -hmm. I, it just as happy as could be without, without a harvest that day, because the cubby of quail and a flush at your feet is, is something that it's hard to describe. I, I, I did such injustice to it yeah. on a podcast, but it, it's just unremarkable. It, it, once you've experienced it, it's great. What does make your heart skip a beat, Marissa? Absolutely, turtles. <laughs> no, I think it's just, uh, well, I mean, it's just watching the dogs work and the excitement that I get and the, the moment they start getting birdie. And, you know, if I'm in a group, I have to tell everybody, hey, my dog is getting birdie, like they can't see it for themselves. But I just get so excited that I have to announce it. Um, you know, I think, I think that that's probably a big one for hmm. me. 
Um, but there's so many. I mean, pick something, and that probably makes our hearts skip beats. <laughs> Colby, Colby did have a, a great point early on that it's not just all in the autumn either. Um, you know, if you think about um, some of the mating rituals of our favorite birds, um, sharp tails and prairie chickens on, uh, you know, on their leks and sage grouse booming, um, you know, that the circle of life as you, as it will, um, it's a pretty amazing that happens, pretty amazing things that happen all year long on the uplands. Uh, number five on CARP's list is food, the culinary delights that connect to the uplands. And, and I this one means a lot to me. It's high on my list. I actually would have put this right next to landscapes because I to me, the two often are married together. The places you hunt and the, the different things that you prepare birds with that you know, if you're going to have scaled quail, then you better have some chilies with them or jalapenos, something from the Southwest. Um, but this is an, a critically valuable component of the uplands. And I know, you know, as I've talked to Marissa over the years, you know, her love of dogs is extremely high. But I think you've said multiple times it was actually the healthy, uh, attaining your own meat was what was the first door that opened to you, the uplands. Is that right, Marissa? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that was what finally flipped the switch for me. Um, and, you know, originally it was a bow and arrow and, and turkeys. Um, but as you mentioned, the bird dogs then, you know, was what took me over to the the dark side of upland hunting and never looked back. Um, but it is just having to work for that food, having to, um, you know, put in the time and the effort and the knowledge and understanding the, the species. And you know, like you mentioned with the lek, um, you know, really just everything about those birds, it just makes it so rewarding. I also think that, you know, it, we're so disconnected from our food anymore that, um, you know, it, I don't really think about when I eat meat that I buy from the grocery store. I just don't really think about it. But then when I harvest my own birds, I am making sure that every single piece of that meat off of those bones is salvageable. I mean, it just means so much to me that I'm using every part of that bird. I tie flies with the feathers. I mean, I just it, it means a lot to me. So it's, it's kind of taken that whole, um, experience to a, a new level, I guess. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, it, it, and I'm thinking about carp, you know, out deer hunting as, you know, or squirrel hunting and rabbit hunting as a little boy, it's not a new thought, right? I mean, the fact that families fill their freezers, I mean, it, the reality is since caveman times, people hunted to survive. And that's, you know, the survival piece of it, you can debate, but um, there's no healthier food you could put on the plate for your family than what you chase. Yeah, I, I, I agree. And I, I think uh, everything Marissa said is so, so on point. I would just, I would add that, preparing 
from field dressing game to preparing it and eating it is as much of the part of the hunt as anything else. It's, it's not an adjunct. It's not an add on. It's not a bonus. It is part of the hunt. Well said. Go go ahead, Colby. I I couldn't agree more with what everybody said about, and, and when I reflect on that part of the culinary side of it, you guys are referring to the harvest and, and what you got um, on the hunt. One thing I'll throw a little curveball in here, though, is is when I think of some of the other culinary delights is really embracing the, the local culture of the places where you travel to go hunting, um, you know, stopping in those local cafes or like you said, if you're you're in a totally different region than you're used to because you're chasing a different species, just uh, relishing in the the things that come with the hunt itself and the traditions, um, that's a big part of it. And the second thing that I would say, especially coming from ranch country out here, is it a lot of times takes you to places where you can see um, the actual reality of working lands and agriculture. Mm-hmm. Um, I think sometimes we have this envision of what farming and ranching is and and where our beef comes from. But when, when you get out into a, an open landscape where a lot of these, these upland birds we chase, uh, they're side by side with, with cattle in some of the most beautiful places um, you'll ever see. And so I think it does give you a connection to um, agriculture too, and beef and the things that come along with that. So I think culinary can go a lot of different ways. And although, you know, the upland game birds are super, super healthy when you're cooking them, that greasy cheeseburger that you're eating in that little cafe <laughs> is what I think about sometimes. So um, it, it's, all, it's all good. That, that's why, that's why Colby is an upland hunter. He has to walk off those, those cheat, the cheeseburger at the there's, cafe. There's a lot of truth to that carp. <laughs> there, you know, we, we have blended in the combination of upland bird hunting and new destinations. It does broaden your mind from a cultural perspective and from a palate perspective as well. And that's, those go hand in hand. You know, you think about it, um, there's an awful lot of vacations, quote unquote, vacations that I take nowadays that bird hunting might be the central component. But it involves stops at restaurants, museums, historic places, um, national parks. It, it's all interwoven. Uh, number six on the list, simplicity. The uplands are not a gear-intensive proposition. Colby, since you're, um, you're kind of a waterfowler, big game hunter, I'm assuming this one strikes a chord with you when it comes to the the ease with which you can go on an upland hunt. Yeah, and it probably strikes even more of a chord with my wife if you talk to her because she knows that uh, the bill sometimes when you get into some of these other adventures when it comes to the decoys and the um, all the things that come with waterfowl hunting or the tree stands and things that come with deer hunting, um, upland hunting... Um, I still have a used 20 gauge Remington 870 Express, uh, which was the first gun that I ever got. And um, I still love using it to, to this day. Um, a little bit of blaze orange and some really good socks and boots and you're good to go. Uh, that's one thing with working with a lot of um, newer hunters and things is it really doesn't matter which 
you know, what, what you're hunting, but make sure you invest in your feet is what I always say, because having a really good pair of socks and I'm a real big believer in what they call liner socks, which is that, that bottom layer to get rid of the friction and a good pair of upland boots, that's going to get you a long way. So um, you don't always need the, the fancy bells and whistles. Obviously, safety is going to be number one. So make sure that you have um, your ears protected, your eyes protected and some blaze orange. Um, that and get you a, a gun that's comfortable. I would say that's another big thing is is comfort, but there's not uh, not as much needed to get into upland hunting as some of the other um, areas. So that's not a real big barrier. But that being said, I will say you can get as extravagant as you want. So I know some people, probably a few of them that I'm looking at on this uh, podcast that, you know, probably are pretty extravagant with the things they buy. And, and there's there's nothing wrong with that. You know, I think there's some great tradition and some uh, great products out there that um, you can invest in. But uh, as far as just getting started, you don't need a whole lot. Yeah, well said. It, it does relate back to. The gear side of things is a choose your own adventure side, much like the dog, you know, you can get technical, you know, for like climbing mountains for chuckers or, or going on backcountry upland bird hunts, or it can be as simple as a shotgun and a blaze orange vest and off you go. It, it, it maybe isn't as simple as picking up a basketball, but it's, it's on the easier side of things compared to having a locker full of hockey gear to go out and, and skate with a hockey team as a, as a, as a pastime. So um, it does tend to be a little bit easier to get into, into the uplands. Uh, number seven on CARP's list, we've talked throughout this entire conversation. The uplands is a lifestyle. It, it gives you a full heart and forever hope. Those are some pretty lofty words, Carp. Tell us what you mean by uh, by a header like that. Well, it's uh, it it comes down to that word lifestyle, and and it comes down to bird dogs, wild places, getting out into those wild places, doing things to help those wild places and becoming a part of that whole picture. And that's why I love upland bird hunting. And a lot of it, because we started back at Bird Dogs, does revolve around that bird dog. That bird dog is with me, trout fishing, morale mushroom picking, hiking in the summer, hiking with the family, going on a run, uh, sitting in my fishing boat in the summer. That dog is a part of my life, and that dog is always a reminder of what our anchor is, and that's upland bird hunting. Colby, what, what are your closing thoughts on on uh, the uplands and the upcoming content series? Yeah, the uplands just have so much to teach us. Um, I think that's the biggest thing, and I love how this series is going to be a, a full year's worth of content because, um, as I already mentioned once, is we need to be out there throughout the year. Um, from springtime all the way through those magical moments in the fall, um, the uplands can empower you, yet they can really humble you. And it's, it's something that can just connect you to nature, um, whether it's doing the habitat work or taking somebody new hunting or enjoying it for the first time yourselves. Um, it, it's, it's also very welcoming. That's one of the biggest things about the uplands is it's welcoming to all. It is a common place, no matter how you got there. 
Um, it's very accessible and it's something that uh, it, it's what we all need in this country. And so I'm glad uh, that we have Uplands and I'm glad to be fighting for it every day. Yeah. Fighting for it every day, thinking about it every day and quarterbacking the path to the Uplands content series. Marissa, as our quarterback, give us your, your closing thoughts as we embark on the path to the Uplands. Yeah, you know, I think the the most important thing is that um, regardless of what your path is going to be to the Uplands, it's unique to yourself. It's what you want to capture from these wild places and this wildlife. So, you know, we're we're here to provide the tools and the help and the resources. But ultimately, you know, it's going to take you getting out there and making your own experiences to find what makes your heart palpitate and what, you know, calls to you in the off season and, you know, all of those incredible things that we talked about, um, you know, that's going to be unique to each and every single individual. Um, so take, you know, what we have to provide and go out and make your own experiences and then share that with others. I mean, that's the biggest mm -hmm. thing that we can, we can advocate for is, please share these stories with others to help them find their path to the uplands so that we can continue to conserve these places. And that, so they stay around and we can enjoy them um, for many, many, many years to come and hopefully grow them. Right. So there's even more places for us to explore. Perfectly said. It, it truly is, you know, everybody's going to have a different path. It is a choose your own adventure. And, and we want to hear your feedback too. Um, things that really resonated things that, you know, topics that uh, are of interest to you that you'd like us to tackle down the road. Um, Marissa, how, how can people provide feedback? Yeah, so we are going to start a, a hashtag that we can follow along, hashtag Path to the Uplands. Um, and then additionally, they can um, shoot us a message um, you can reach me at mjensen, J-E-N-S-E-N, at pheasantsforever.org, or Tom Carpenter. I'll let you provide your contact information, too, but get a hold of us. We we want to know what you want to hear. This this series is for you, so don't be afraid to to ask. Yeah, I'm, I'm T. Carpenter, T-C-A-R-P-E-N-T-E-R, at pheasantsforever.org. So just call me Carp. Yeah, well, you could call him Carp. We just haven't created the email that says simply Carp at PheasantsForever.org. So, so that that is a black hole. But if you do T Carpenter at PheasantsForever.org, <laughs> yes. it'll get to yes. get to Carp. Um, once again, I want to um, give a special thank you to our corporate partners who, are, again, are help funding this content series. And again, you know, we're, we're a nonprofit conservation organization. These corporate partners are critical to helping pay, helping really pay for the creation of this content and helping fund our mission. So federal ammunition, if you're going to load anything up in your shotguns, make it be federal. They are our longest standing corporate partner, bar none. Um, Onyx Maps. We've talked about uh, um, Onyx a couple of times. It is a tremendous tool for identifying what public land is out there for you to go explore. Sound Gear, 
Colby mentioned hearing protection. Soundgear is a national sponsor that's a, a part of been a part of our organization for close to a decade. Sport Dog Electronic Dog Training Systems. I, I use the Sport Dog Tech 2.0. It's got the GPS e-collar system together. Um, it's a wonderful dog training system. And um, also Alps Outdoors. Be sure to take the pledge at our website um, under at pheasantsforever.org or quailforever.org. Um, it's underneath the hunting tab, correct, Colby, the, the Hunter Mentor Pledge? Yep, it's on the hunting tab, and that goes through the end of June. So there's still a lot of opportunity out there for any any mentors. Um, we got spring turkey hunting coming up, and um, you know, like I said, just take them outdoors. Whether it's shed hunting, mushroom hunting, uh, tell us your story. And if you didn't submit your story from last year, make sure you do so because in July we're going to give away that awesome guided trip for a mentor and a mentee. So just make sure that you do the final step and tell us your story. There you go. That's. The Alps Outdoors Pledge, Hunter Pledge, Hunter Mentor Pledge on our websites under the hunting tab. All right, folks, thank you so much for listening as we kick off the path to the uplands. Stay tuned. We're going to have blogs, articles in the Pheasants Forever Journal, articles in the Quail Forever Journal, videos, and of course, more podcasts. Um, thank you very much for joining us on this path to the uplands. I'm Bob St. Pierre reminding you to always follow the dog. Something good is going to rise. Thanks for listening.